Thank you. Thank you guys for your investment. Yeah. Thank you for your investment in, uh, in Triple Treat, a way that we as a community get to embody what it means to be living proof of a loving God and, uh, and celebrate his generosity that he's shown to us in meaningful, tangible ways. Uh, I think there was roughly 750, 800 people that rolled through. So thank you for your investment in our community and, uh, and excited for what God continues to do in lives through an invitation like that into a loving community. And, um, and, and someone gave me this gift this morning. I thought this was funny, so I had to share it with you. Around here, ch- church isn't a, just a singing and teaching event, right? It is a, the people of God gather collectively on a Sunday to worship God. We, we sing songs. Uh, you heard from Erica this morning. We tell stories of God's work in our lives as sons and daughters of the king. We hear a sermon from the text. We go to the text, and then we are sent out to be living proof and so someone, someone gave me this as a gift this morning. It says, Pastor Warning, anything you say or do could be used in a sermon. And so <laughs> there's a strong possibility, yes, if you share something God's doing in your life, there's a higher probability you might be asked to share it on a Sunday. Um, but we are continuing on. We're in Luke, and we've been in Luke, and so this should... Should look familiar. Um, we've been asking, what, what is Luke writing about? And he told us in verse 1 that we might have certainty in Christ. And so we set our alarms to 104. And so when my alarm goes off at 104, I pray, God, what are you inviting me into? Because that what, that's what Luke is all about, this certainty in Christ. And the way he's drawn us into that story is giving us the entrance of the king. In chapters 1 to 4, it was all about this miraculous birth that God became a man and dwelt among us, that Jesus is a historical figure. You have to reconcile who this man was 2,000 years ago, Luke tells us. And then Luke shifts into his teaching in chapters 4 to 9, where he talks about the teachings of the king. We see the Sermon on the Mount. We see this upside-down kingdom and what Jesus is calling people to. And then, starting in chapter 9, we've begun this journey of the king. In chapter 9, verse 51, he says, he turns his face to Jerusalem. And so we follow him. Jesus shows us what it means to follow him to Calvary, to the cross. And so we are in this section, the journey of the king. And I I don't know about you. This is where my mind sometimes goes. Uh, I look around our world. (laughs) I I look at the pain sometimes that exists in our personal lives, in our interpersonal lives interpersonal lives, in our relationship with others, uh, in our workplaces at times, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Uh, My mind goes to global challenges that are taking place all around the world. And sometimes I just throw up my hands. God, what what are you doing? I I don't often see it. I feel small at times and and overwhelmed by the amount of need that exists all around, probably in, in all of your lives as well. And this morning's text gives us a window into a tiny town, a tiny Jewish town, with one meal with a group of people and a bunch of onlookers chastising and criticizing the meal that's taking place. And so it reminded me, not the big idea of the text, but here's where the text at least shook me a little bit this week, that we get a window in the midst of all the other Things that were happening 2,000 years ago, we get a highlight into a moment in time 
that could seem small, and yet it is not insignificant. That there are massive things happening in heaven when this small conversation was taking place. That it was small but not insignificant. There were massive, massive things happening in heaven. Here is how Luke records this meal that Jesus is having. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. Man, this is the kind of church I dream of. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That we are the kind of church that is drawing people to hear the words of Christ. And the Pharisees and scribes grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, these parables. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you what, what is taking place Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God massive realities because of this seemingly small incident. Rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, and there's going to be one more parable. There was a man who had two sons. So we're going to stop there. The big idea that seems to be in the text this morning and wrestle with me Jesus corrects an inaccurate view embraced by people who claim to love God. To whom was he speaking again? Scribes and Pharisees who were grumbling about what was taking place. Jesus corrects an inaccurate view embraced by people who claim to love God. And what does he tell them? He shows them and tells them about the breadth of his grace and depth of his love for those who are lost and the joy when they are found. He's going to interact with these tax collectors, sinners, and have a pointed conversation with Pharisees and scribes about the incredible value and depth of his grace and breadth of his grace and depth of his love for those who are lost and then are found. So pray with me and we will uh, we'll dig in like we always do. Jesus, you are so kind to us. Whatever we carried in, uh, whatever personal pain or trauma that might be uh, just so near to the surface right now, will you still our hearts and minds, whatever might be taking place maybe in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods or, or family dynamic, will you, uh, will you meet us and just <laughs> still our hearts? Um, if our minds are going to the challenges all across the globe, uh, will you draw us to what you have to share in Luke 15 this morning? Thank you, Jesus, always for your glory, we pray. Amen. So here's where he starts in the text. Jesus passionately pursues the lost and searches for us. He shows this passionate pursuit of the lost. Here's what he says. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners. So let's just look at the setting and the characters real quick. Who is he talking to? Whom is he talking to? And, and, and what is the context? Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Like I said, this is the kind of church we dream of. That those that are lost and looking for hope in the midst of this empty, broken world, they're searching empty wells, they find and interact with us, and they, and they long to hear the words of Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he tells them these parables. So what's the accusation? You guys hear it? What's the accusation that they're levying against Jesus? And it's not a new one. We've been hearing this accusation throughout Luke. Jesus, you're not supposed to be hanging with them. Don't you know who they are? Those are the lost people. We're the found people. So we want nothing to do with them. They might contaminate us, Jesus. And so their accusation is, you can't be spending time with them. And so now he's going to correct their view of God by telling them stories about how God views those who are lost. But nothing new. Let's just look at how this thread has continued throughout Luke. This is the one we're reading this morning. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Back in Luke 5, Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? A couple chapters later, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man, the accusation about the Lord of the universe, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Continuing on in that chapter, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she had learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. There's the context. Again, another story. Jesus confronts scribes and Pharisees. And so he tells them these parables. Here's the first one. What's the big idea? He is showing that God is passionately pursuing lost people. And then reflecting on our world, searches for us. There is nothing in the world that is too lost or too far gone. Here's the parable. Pick it up at verse 3. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then he tells another story about this woman. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house? This isn't small. (laughs) In God's economy, one for the 99, one for the nine, it is this pursuit. Nothing is so lost that God would not actively pursue that life. 
Do we feel the weight of what that means? Nothing is so lost. Sometimes I think we reflect on our lives and we go, God, God can't meet me there. That's too far. I've gone too far outside of his grace. He's correcting their view of who God is and God's passionate pursuit of the lost. And it's not insignificant. That one life is incredibly significant. And I love the correlation that he draws in the parables. The value of what is lost produces the depth of urgency of what is to be found. You guys ever lose things in your house? Does that ever happen? Where you turn maybe to your spouse, your roommate, and you're like, Man, where did I put such and such? Does that ever happen? Maybe it's just me. Then it's just me. I'm the one that loses stuff. So I'm, I'm always telling Casey, where did I put my keys? Like I'm trying to establish one place in the house. We have a drawer. I put the keys there. And, and yet, what do I always do? Casey, where did I put my keys? She's the smart one of the family. She just leaves her keys in the car. So if anyone ever wants to rob our house, get in the garage, there's going to be a, a Honda minivan there with keys in the car. Casey just leaves the keys in the car. That's how, how it works best for her. But, but the value of what is lost produces the depth of urgency for what is to be found. I do want to find keys, but I also have a spare, and I am thankful that I have a spare key in those cases where I forget where I put my keys, and then I go, oh yeah, they were in that pocket, and then I can place those keys back. You ever been somewhere and you lost something really valuable? So I remember being at Costco. This has only happened once, but Casey will often tell me this. Hey, do you have all the kids? I'm like, of course I do. Here they are. One, two, three, four. We got them. What's the problem? Why are you asking me this question? So I remember being at Costco one time, and I mean, Costco's slammed, right? I mean, it's just busy. There's always like people moving everywhere, milling around. And I mean, I feel like when I walk out of there, I look at my cart and I'm like, did I really spend that much on this amount of stuff in this small cart? And so I, we're at Costco and, uh, and we're standing in line, we're trying to pay. And, uh, and Casey turns to me and she says, hey, do you have the kids? And I went, yes. And we had three at the time. One, two, I just panicked. My, my heart just dropped. And, and I mean, it felt like forever. It was only about 10 or 15 seconds. Felt like forever. And, and, I, and I'm looking around for my kid, just, just frantic, looking, where did they go? What happened? And your mind just goes to, to how many different places of what could have happened. Now, what turned out, they had run over to the food area, and they just wanted a smoothie. That's what happened. And so, finally, we see them, but I'm like, I'm just panicked at this point. They're, I'm screaming their name. They finally run over. I embrace them. The value what is lost produces the depth of urgency for it to be found. Hear what Jesus says about those he's seeking. So he told this man a parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. (laughs) That God is searching for those that have yet to treasure him. He's chasing after the lost. He says about the woman, if she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it scouring the place, moving furniture, lighting a lamp, until the lost is found. 
Jesus is correcting the Pharisees and scribes' misunderstanding about how God views those that we don't associate with. He says, you have a clear misunderstanding about those that are far from me. I long for them to come and find life in my name. And so the question for me then inevitably goes to, how has God been seeking you? How did God in your story seek after you? For me, and I think I've shared this a few times, for me, I had the privilege of growing up in a faith-based home. I love God in his grace. I could have been born anywhere in the globe, right? And yet God, in his grace, provided me to be in a faith-based home with a mom who's a prayer warrior, if that term means anything to anybody, and a dad who's a pastor. And, and I didn't grow up in a place that was uh, absent from a gathering like this, where, where it was a value to gather with other followers of Jesus, to be in an environment where Scripture... And prayer was valued. We weren't atheists. We weren't reading the Book of Mormon or the Quran. We were reading Scripture. And yet you've heard me say, in my heart, when I thought of those who didn't treasure Christ, I just looked and said I was better than them. The guys I hung out with in high school, they were a bunch of pagans. But man, they were a ton of fun. But what did I know about them? I knew I was better than them. And then God continued to work on my heart, that pharisaical heart in me. I was surrounded by Christians. They were just less fun to be with. But I, I was the one that was lost. And then I get to college, and, and I start hanging with some guys that treasured Jesus, and they began to show me they had something that I didn't actually have. I remember hanging with Juan. He'd drive me to San Pedro. We'd drive, visit his family. And he would just model and embody something that I didn't have. He modeled this joy in Christ that I would be able to put words to later. He just lived out what it meant to follow Christ. And it was then that rather than seeing those people and grumbling about why would Jesus pursue them the light began to be shared on my own heart to see that I needed Jesus. And he continues to pursue me through others, many of you, and your grace and pursuit of sharing those stories of what God's doing in your life and the circumstances, circumstances of life where God continues to draw us to himself, draw me to himself through these circumstances, sometimes challenging circumstances to help me cling more closely to him. So I want to ask you guys, who has God used to draw you to himself? I'd even encourage you to write it on the bulletin in front of you. Who has God used to draw you to himself? Or potentially, who is God using? Maybe you're here because you're on someone's pray watch list. Someone is praying for your life and watching for green shoots as God is doing a work and he's drawing you to himself. Who has God used in your life? Because the value of what is lost produces the depth of urgency for what is found. How have you seen God draw you to himself? And 
and I know a little bit of the value of what is to be lost. Viking fans have been lost for years, and so I'm excited for the game this afternoon. We'll see how you Packer fans do, uh, and I am sure hoping the Vikings are going to be found. We'll see. Time will tell. Jesus passionately pursues lost people, and God wildly celebrates what almost no one notices. Here's what he tells in the parable. Pick it up at verse 3. So he told them this terrible. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Who's around there to see that happen? No one, but he's pumped. He is absolutely ecstatic when no one else might notice. God is seeing the transformation take place. And so for me, the question What's your picture of God's emotion when he considers you? When he was seeking after you and he found you, if he has found you, by faith you've come to faith and treasure him, what emotion starts bubbling up in God finding you? Do you see him rejoicing that the lost has been found or do you beat yourself up and go, you're just disappointed I should have figured this out sooner. Man, I, I, I haven't gotten it all figured out. Or do you feel the way Jesus rejoices? Another question that strikes my head. When he found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And then we see with the woman, he comes home and he calls together his friends. Sorry, of the man. He calls together his friends. It's multiplied and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. And then the woman in the coin, rejoice with me. It's multiplied for I found the coin that I had lost But even more than what's happening in that small space, what does Jesus say is taking place in heaven? Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is a massive (laughs) reality taking place when someone repents and comes to find life in Christ. Where does your heart go when you view God seeking the lost? What's your picture of God's emotions towards you? But when you think of the world, what's the emotion you have towards those that have yet to find Christ? Because most likely, they're acting in a way that reflects they don't treasure Christ. (laughs) Aren't we seek behavior modification or... Do we hope that they find life with Christ? What emotion comes to your mind? Is it that same emotion of disappointment? Why haven't they figured this out yet? What's wrong with them that they can't get their stuff together? Do do you go to a place of skepticism? (laughs) That person will never understand. (laughs) Maybe they're showing signs and you're skeptical about the signs of faith they might be showing those aren't real or like Jonah and his view of those in Nineveh there was anger that's not right that God would show grace to them or maybe it's just a numbness you're just so bombarded by all the things and all the noise and the busyness that that it's hard to even open up your heart to what it would mean that God is changing lives and drawing lost people and helping them be found. 
What's your picture of God's emotions when he considers the lost? Is it a recognition that the, death, the depth of desperation for the lost defines the cause of celebration to be found? The greater I understand and desperate for those who are lost to be found significantly impacts the type of celebration I feel when I see green shoots taking place in people's lives. We're going to see this later in Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He's drawing people to himself. And then when someone is given the choice earlier in Luke 9, on this journey to another, he said, follow me. Follow me in inviting more lost people to be found. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Lost people matter, and Jesus wants them to find life in his name. And then he tells one more parable. He tells a story of a man who had two sons. And so I'm going to read it. Maybe this is familiar for some of you. We often see it as the prodigal son, and yet, what does Jesus say? There was a man who had two sons. God desires that those who experience the love of the Father and are found by him are used then to help find others. Here's the story. And if you're unfamiliar, here's the three characters in the story and how Jesus is relating them. The sinners and tax collectors that he's been talking about, we clearly understand them as the prodigal. But he also speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders, and he tells them they are this older brother and he himself offers him as the loving father. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, a recognition of the need, owning the need. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. What emotion strikes the older brother when thinking about the father's love? But he was angry and refused to go in. 
How could you show love to him for what he's done and what he deserves? He does not deserve this demonstration of love. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. The love of the Father. God desires that those who experience His love and are found by Him then are used to help find others. So just want to make a few observations about the son, the older son, the younger son, and then the father. The younger son, what do we notice about him? He believes his better is better. (laughs) Not the father's better. Much like us, we don't actually always see God's better is better. We believe our better is better. And we choose to put ourselves on the throne of our hearts. And for me, it always seems to center around three primary things. Money, sex, and power. If I just had a little bit more money, then I'd feel better. If I just pursued human sexuality in the way I desired and saw it best lived out, then I'd be happy. If I was just able to exercise a little bit more power and influence others over others and they would behave in the way that I wanted them to behave, then I'd be happier. We believe our better is better. If, if it just worked the way we wanted it to, we'd be happier. And yet, what does the younger son realize? His way didn't work. He searched empty wells, finding them empty and longing for more. He realized his way didn't work. That there's more to life than just money, sex, and power. We know that. And yet we still search for these empty wells thinking they're going to provide something that they never do. Our world is lonely. Our world is searching for significance. It's, it's in debt up into its eyeballs. We worship our kids to our detriment, chasing them around. And because of some of Western evangelical America, there's this baggage that we carry around faith because we've just been beat up by guys like me that just try to bully people. Instead, we realize that our way doesn't work and there is something about this father. And so what do we see in the younger brother? He returns. He seeks out the father's help. He longs for that restored relationship that that his, the father's better is truly better. What about the older brother? What do we see in him? What observations did you notice? That the same was true. God was passionately searching for him. He passionately searched for the older brother. And he didn't show favoritism. (laughs) The older brother felt... Why are you giving this to him? And yet what God, what the father showed was my portion was equally distributed, not more or less. You didn't get any less than your other brother. God didn't show favoritism one way or the other. And yet what were one of the misses? Oh, and God highly values us. He says, son, all that I have is yours. (laughs) 
The older brother is highly valued, and yet what did he miss? He missed the depth of his own sin. When the lost was found, what emotion bubbled up in his heart? Anger. And he missed the breath of the father's love. What do we learn about the father? It comes from Ephesians. It's the biggest but in the Bible. I love it. Every time I read it in Ephesians, but God. You were dead in your trespasses, but God. Our father embraces us and celebrates us. That the lost are never too lost. There's never outside of God's desire in hand to draw people in. Our Father embraces us and celebrates us. And God is happy when we turn and invite others to, our, to his party. What's the emotion you feel? Is it one of disappointment or skepticism or anger? God, that can't be that person. They don't deserve your grace and love. Look at the trouble they're causing. And yet, God is happy when we turn and invite others to celebrate in his party. And what's critical? Understanding the depth of our own depravity. Do we recognize the depth of what we've been saved from? And do we understand the breadth of God's love in inviting people to life? So a question we often ask around here is what? God, what are you inviting me into today? And so I have a few encouragements this week about what that could look like. What would it look like to actually sit and contemplate what God is doing in and around you and how he sought after you to be still for an hour just to reflect on the magnitude that you were once lost and that you are now found? And then what's the motivation that he tells us in these parables? To pray and watch and step. Why? (laughs) To rejoice that the sheep is found. To find joy that 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 is taking place in heaven, in here, in real time. And so I want us to continue to believe that prayer is the work. And we happily watch and deliberately step and plan an interaction with someone who doesn't yet treasure Christ. What would it look like to believe Jesus is seeking people and he's using us And yet, I also understand, I might not always feel that as fully as I'd want. So if that's the case, if that's where you find yourself, if you're not as motivated to pursue a relationship with someone who is still lost, we prayerfully ask God to reveal why that is. Why is that, God, that I might not be as excited and as urgent to invite people into life here in the name? I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I want to invite up Helena Pope. Uh, a young lady around here, because what we see in Luke 15, this beautiful story of radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. Either the younger son or the older brother, radical forgiveness is worth celebrating. And so uh, we get to celebrate with Helena in baptism today. But before that, we want to be encouraged by your story and what God has been doing in your life. So Helena, would you share a little bit of what God has been doing in your life?